This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 511th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and for those of you tuning in, this episode is being recorded in front of a live audience at the wonderful SCAD Savannah Film Festival in Savannah, Georgia, which I have been privileged to attend and cover for 11 years now, and which gets better every year. My guest today is one of the great storytellers of stage and screen, which is why it's only fitting that he's here at the fest to collect the Storyteller Award. He's a playwright best known for writing 1986's The Colored Museum and co-writing 1992's Jelly's Last Jam, He's a theater director, best known for directing the original Broadway productions of Angels in America, Millennium Approaches, and Angels in America, Perestroika, two landmark plays in 1993, and a host of Broadway musicals, including 1996's Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, 2004's Caroline or Change, and 2016's Shuffle Along. And he's a screen director, best known for directing the 2005 limited series Lackawanna Blues, and the films Night in Rodanthe from 2008, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks from 2017, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom from 2020, and this year's Rustin, the story of Bayard Rustin, the gay civil rights activist who organized the 1963 March on Washington. Over the course of his career, this 69-year-old has been nominated 15 times for a Tony Award, winning three for Best Direction of a Play for Angels in America Millennium Approaches in 1993, Best Direction of a Musical for Bring in Denoise, Bring in Defunk in 1996, and Best Special Theatrical Event for Elaine Stritch at Liberty in 2002. He was nominated for an Emmy, Best Directing for a Limited Series, for Lackawanna Blues in 2005, and he has twice been nominated for the Directors Guild of America Award for Outstanding Directing of a Miniseries or TV Film for Lackawanna Blues in 2006, which resulted in a win, and for The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks in 2018. The New York Times' Ben Brantley has described him as a brilliant stage director, arguably the best now working in the American theater. The Los Angeles Times declared there are few living talents who could be viewed as as much of a New York theater institution. Interview Magazine said it would be difficult to overstate his status on Broadway, and Tony Kushner proclaimed that he is the premier theater artist of my generation. And those are just the quotes about his work in theater. There are many more about his work in film. But without further ado, would you please join me in welcoming to the SCAD Savannah Film Festival and to the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast, Mr. George C. Wolf. Mr. Wolf, thank you so much for coming to Savannah. Glad to be here. Glad to. Let's just start at the very beginning. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Frankfort, Kentucky. Uh, 
my mother was a teacher and she later became a principal of the schools. I went to that school. She taught me. It was horrifying. Um, <laughs> my father worked for the state government. Um, and um, that's that. For the first eight years of your life, the town in which you grew up was segregated. Yes. Uh, you have spoken about wanting to go see a movie, 101 Dalmatians, and not being able to do that because of your race. Well, my, my grandmother was, was this incredibly ferocious figure and who, who would take on anybody. And I remember telling her that I wanted to go see 101 Dalmatians at the Capitol Theater. And, um, and I remember her calling, you know, and them telling her no. And it was, the, it was sort of startling and shocking and fascinating because it was the first time she'd ever come in, I'd ever see her come into contact with a no. And so that was fascinating. But then it integrated. And then at one point, then when I went to high school, I was editor of the, of the high school newspaper. And I went and convinced the man who ran the Capitol Theater that I should go see movies for free so that I could write <laughs> reviews. And I explained, he said, but by the time the review comes out, the movies will be gone. But I said, but it's cultivating a love of movies. And so that's what my column will do. And so it was my slight payback that's because great. then I got to go see movies for I free. Love it. Yeah. Um, let's talk, though. There's a moment you've, you've described over the years. You were in fourth grade and your at that time, all uh, black grade goes to an all white class. But that time it was, I think I was, it was probably a little bit older. So I got the, about, about the, uh, the, the PTA and the singing. Well, it's, it, I, I think by that time, Frankfurt was, was, was uh, integrated, but I still went to this, this uh, black school, which was connected to a university there. And the principal, Minnie, this woman named Minnie J. Hitch, um, you told us, because we, we were going to be singing a song, and the lyrics were these truths we are declaring that all men are the same, that liberty is a torch burning with a steady flame. And she told us that when we got to the line that liberty is a torch burning with a steady flame, we should sing it with a ferocity and that we would shatter all racism in the room. <laughs> so so I, I literally remember these truths we are declaring that all men are the same, that liberty is a torch, you know, doing that. <laughs> And then racism was gone. And racism was gone, exactly. <laughs> they were all transformed. But it was such a, it was, an, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's like so cluelessly wonderful for somebody to tell someone that young that if you say words and if you say them with power and conviction, you can change people. And that, that sense of, of potency, of conviction and language was embedded in me, and it's never left. When did you see your first theatrical production that was done professionally? When I was 12 or 13, my mother went to do some advanced degree work at NYU, and she brought me along, and it was one summer, um, and so I saw uh, a production of West Side Story, that was done at the State Theater at Lincoln Center. Then I saw a production of Hello, Dolly! with Cap Calloway and Pearl Bailey. Wow. And then I saw a production, as it turns out, from the public theater and mobile unit 
the Cleavon Little played Hamlet. Wow. And it was done in uh, Washington Square Park. Wow. And it was, it, and, and in some respect, each of those three productions had, a, I think, a lasting impact on a kind of aesthetic. Right. And, and also, but also, and, and the thing interesting about the mobile unit, it, it was free. And so it was seeing the rawness of that energy of the audience was also very, it was very, very, really wonderful and really interesting and great. So throughout the rest of your time in high school, you were increasingly involved in theater in school. Uh, I don't know if it, it was specific. I think, was it writing, directing, acting? What were you, what were you focused on at that point? Well, act, act, acting and directing. And also it's very interesting because when I went to that high school, I stuttered really intensely. So they did, this is one thing I was talking about earlier. So they decided that I was stupid because I stuttered. And so they called my mother over to the school to say, and they wanted to put me in remedial classes. And she says, are you crazy? No, that's that not happening. And so I developed an Evita complex. So I said, by the time I leave this school, I will be running it. And so, <laughs> and so I was editor, I was drum major. I was the worst drum major in, since the dawn of time. I just, I just, you know, I was editor of the newspaper of the literary magazine. I just did all these stubs just to, you know, Show them. how dare you dismiss. I could tell, and I never heard the story about them calling my mother over, but I could tell I was being disregarded. Right. I sensed it. And I went, no. So you start college in Kentucky and yeah. then move to Pomona in yes. California. Um, what at that oh, time? this is sterile. Oh, yeah, okay. no, we're, yes. we're doing the whole thing. Exactly. Uh, what was the, the idea of going out to California? Was it just to have a change of scenery, or did you, were you already thinking, maybe that's where you go if you want to be in show business? No, not at all. I, no, I had always dreamed of going to New York. I would, I would watch, you know, TV shows that were set in New York, like the Dick Van Dyke show. Mm -hmm. And I remember this is kind of neurotic and crazy, but I— what I really, I was obsessed with Disney and I wanted to have my own amusement park, <laughs> but I wanted money. I knew you need a lot of money. Right. So I decided that actors made a lot of money. This was when I was seven or eight. Right. And so, and I knew that actors starved. So when I was seven or eight, I used to practice not eating right. so that when I went to New York, <laughs> this, is, this is insanely true that, you know, that I, so I could deal with it, you know. Wow. Little did I know one doesn't need to practice starvation. <laughs> You're just sort of like. So you graduate from Pomona, go to LA for a little while. Yeah, to do theater. To do theater. Okay. Now, theater, as I guess you quickly concluded, is primarily in New York. Well, yeah. I mean, at one point I, I, I did shows and I started to get some good reviews in the LA Times. And then I got called in, I don't even remember, for to be a writer on a sitcom. And, and, I, and I said something funny, and they said, oh, he's quick. We're going to have to tie one hand behind his back. And I took that literally. <laughs> and that's when I went, I'm moving to New York. <laughs> you know, I just was, it was like. Time to go. Time to, to go. Time to go confront a whole bunch of other stuff and things right. I need to learn and, and get smarter about. Well, so okay, you move. It's 1979. You're in your 20s. You move to New York. Early 20s. Early 20s. Right, right, right. Very early. <laughs> in fact, I was 19. I was just 19. pretending to be 20. There you you know, go. Something like that. Yeah. You moved to New York. There are a number of years then after moving there that were we can say lean. You got to put into practice not eating so much. Exactly. Um, 
You said quote, once, quote, I came to New York to write and direct, and when I got here, a lot of my rage came out, close quote. What do you mean by that? Well, it was, it's so interesting because the, in, in L.A., it's, you know, it, it's, you know there's, there's more space, so, so, you know, poverty and wealth are very much so separated. And then in New York, it's, you know, they're next door to each other, and, and the intensity of the, the inequity at the time, plus the fact that I had no real power over my existence sort of magnified all of that. And I, re I remember, I remember seeing, I remember one time seeing this image of this, of this woman in a fur coat. It was winter and eating chocolates. And there was a subway vent and there was this homeless woman sitting there and she had newspaper wrapped around her legs instead of boots. And she was like, like crazy and was like, and just seeing those two images next to each other, it's, you know, it's, it's the thing about New York. Every single time you step foot outside your front door, you see somebody who is worse off than you and you see somebody who is living a completely different life than you. So you have, you, you get instant perspective whether you want it or not. So in those, those leaner years, you are uh, teaching a little bit. You're going to get your own MFA at yeah. NYU Tisch. In dramatic writing, your are uh, Dramatic writing and musical theater. And musical theater. At a theater. double MFA, yeah. And then there's a opportunity to have a work of yours produced for the first time at Playwrights Horizon, yes. which is a big deal, Playwrights Horizon. Yeah. Um, and how did that go? Well, it, um, it was interesting. It was, it was ultimately the best thing that could have happened for my career. I didn't direct it. I, I, wrote, the, I wrote the book and, 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 and I wrote the lyrics uh, for it. And, it uh, and there were things that in the rehearsal process that I, and also when I first came to New York, I said, I'm a writer and director. And they said, no, you can't do both. You have to focus in on one. And I said, but I can do both. And they said, no, you can't. So I focused just on the writing. So then I, uh, there were things that were happening in the rehearsal room that I knew weren't right. But in the spirit of rah, 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 getting along and being good guy and all that sort of stuff, I didn't object. And then I remember there was a tornado passing through New York City on the day my bad review came out. So I'm standing on the corner of 95th and Broadway with the winds blowing and I'm <laughs> reading this hate review. And it was so very painful, but it was really interesting because it was very good for me because, you know, I went, oh, if this happens again, if I get another bad review, and of course I've gotten bad reviews, but if it's going to be because it's my vision, because it's I, because I put every single thing I had on the line. Everybody, we're only in the room to make a very beautiful baby. And if we become good friends as a result of that, that's fine. But we all have a responsibility, the people that you're collaborating with, to do their finest, best work, and you have to do your finest, best work. And it was interestingly enough, when I was at NYU, the piece that I wrote that bombed, I went, oh, this is gonna be successful. And then there was this play that I wrote just for myself called The Colored Museum. And yeah. 
None of y'all applauded when I said the title of the other thing, Paradise, <laughs> did you? No. And so, and that, but that's what happened. It was the most interesting thing because I wrote one for success and I wrote one for myself. And that was the thing that succeeded. And so it was a very deeply, deeply, deeply valuable lesson. It was just like, and then eight weeks later, all those people who tried, eight weeks, no, eight months, like word that it were eight weeks, <laughs> eight months later, all those people who had trashed me were going, oh, it's, ah, where's he been? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And it was, I'm so glad it happened that way. I'm so glad that the first piece was treated that way so that therefore it, it gave me a clarity and a sense of, of responsibility and doing, and doing work that I believed in and, and that, was, that I believed mattered as opposed to something that was going to lead to success. It was just one of those slap you in the face and get smart, George. So you mentioned the Colored Museum, which let's just say, though, you know, you had com you're coming off the rough review. How did you even get the opportunity to do the Colored Museum, which is going to, as if you don't know, it was the first big success for Mr. Wolf. So how did that opportunity even come out of that? Well, it came out of that because I was at Playwrights Horizons, because a guy named Lee Richardson, who was running a theater called Crossroads, said, you're at Playwrights Horizons, and I don't think there's ever been a black playwright at Playwrights Horizons. Do you have something else that you've written? I said, well, funny you should ask. Da-da, Colored Museum. And so that's how it happened. So there is, they, were, they were both connected in a, in a, in a way that, didn't seem so at the time, but was sort of brilliantly perfect. I want to ask you, so the Colored Museum um, is produced at Crossroads in 86 and then moved to the Public Theater yes. in 87, which you'll notice the Public Theater, the great off-Broadway institution, is going to come up quite a few times yeah. in this conversation. But can you, for people who weren't around at that time or don't know or whatever, can you describe what the Colored Museum is about and what the controversy, backlash that that provoked was. Because it was, you, you, you had to develop thick skin early on because it was not all uh, fun and games in response to that one either. Well, it, but that, that was different. That was called pure unadulterated jealousy. So um, that, that, was, that, had no, that, was, that was just, you know, I, I came from nowhere and all of a sudden I'm at the public theater and Frank Rich wrote a, wrote, a, wrote a review, a rave review and said, it's the kind of playwright who takes no prisoners and people thought, and that meant he kills people, the language kills them. Right. And people thought that that meant I was soft. So it was just like, that was just dumb cluelessness. That was very... That was very easy to dismiss, and and you know, and it was it was just jealousy. It was, and that I, you know, I went, oh, my feelings are hurt. Oh, I'm over that. Okay, go to hell. You know, it was just sort of like I didn't I didn't sweat about that. Well, tell us a little bit about the show because this well, was your big success. First, piece yeah, it was first. It, well, it's it, it's interesting when I was at NYU uh, in the dramatic writing program. There are about three or four people writing plays about old black tap dancers. And they didn't happen to be old black or tap dancers. And so, and I was just, I was just, I just thought about it and I said, so somebody has figured out, has made a decision or dynamics have been created so that people have decided what black is. And I'm going, I'm black, I've been black my entire life. And I view it as this ever-changing, complicated, insane, brilliant, amazing thing. So it was an effort to shatter shatter any preconceived notions 
that I thought were going to stand in the way of what I wanted to create. So I wrote this play, which was eight exhibits set inside a museum. So I wanted to shatter all the perceptions, any perceptions that were in my head so as to liberate me to go in any direction that I wanted it to. And that's what happened. And it became this, and it became this very successful show. It played, I think, for I think for 10 months at the public theater, then it went to the Royal Court in London, then it toured all around, and now it's, it's you know, it's high schools do it now yeah. and stuff, which is great. So it's, um, in, and then as a result of it, then I started getting interesting from that. I went from, you know, being completely flat broke to then I started, met, I met the heads of studios. Yeah. I got, Mike Nichols wanted me to direct, write a movie for him. Robert Altman wanted me to write movies. So all of a sudden, you know, these job opportunities happened. But it wasn't for many years that you actually went into film. In the meantime, you you were uh, kind of seizing this uh, interest in the theater, this opportunity now in the theater. There was a person who is legendary by the name of Joseph Papp, who founded and ran the public, who took a great interest in you and, um, you know, brought you in there. And, mm -hmm. and uh, we can say... Um, you know, in addition to producing the Colored Museum, right, named you one of three resident directors there, offered to uh, have a producing entity within the public for you. This was a, a big champion to have. He then pa passes away in 1991. He gets succeeded by uh, a, a lady who was there for only 18 months. And then in August 1993, this institution of the, the the sort of first thing that comes to mind when you think, at least for me, off-Broadway, comes looking for a new director. How did you become aware that there was interest in you for that position? And was it, was that job, which you then, spoiler alert, got and held for the next 12 years, was it what you thought it would be? Uh, nothing is ever what you think it's going to be. <laughs> um, but that's the point of the journey. Um, it was... It, Actually, it was, I was, I, I directed a Broadway show called Jelly's Last Jab, and then I was then offered Angels in America, and, and then I was in the middle of directing a seven-hour play, and then they called up my lawyer and said, we want to talk to George about running the public theater, and I went, well, I'm kind of busy <laughs> right now. Can they come back after? And they said no, and so they wanted to make a decision. So when I was in rehearsal, it was announced that I was running the public theater. It was, I loved, the thing which I loved, I loved, loved about running the public theater was giving artists money, giving artists money and spaces where they could go do work. It was it, that, you know, because I, after, after Jelly, I went, oh, this is hard. Surviving Broadway and dealing with all of these all of the dynamics and the money and the audiences and all of that stuff, this is really, really hard and you have to be really, really tough. And so I knew all these artists who were really gifted, incredibly gifted people, but maybe weren't as tough. Can we, can I just mention a few yields? Because these are shows that were given a spotlight by you in those years, which in fact, several of them were just revived in the last couple of years. So decades later, people are, you know, coming back to them. But let's note, Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992. This was Anna Deerver Dear Smith uh, and important show there. That was 1994. We had Top Dog Underdog, Susan Laurie Parks wins the Pulitzer for that. 19, excuse me, 2002. Take Me Out, 
again just revived. So these are the kinds of people who we're talking about where you can, and this, the public was not particularly known for its uh, being inclusive prior to your tenure. Well, I, I'd say it was, I think probably, yes, it, I, I well, think it's, it's also a place that gave us, you know, for colored girls. And yes. it's also a place that gave us for short, short, short eyes. So, so yeah, I'm, so I, I would, I wouldn't totally agree with that. And also these were very smart artists and these were tough artists, but there were, you know, it's just, you, you, you people, when you're beginning, you need a place to play, which means you, and you need a place to fail so that you can get smarter. Like I had with Playwrights Horizon, you need, you need to, to do the work and not feel the pressure of it being the biggest hit in the world because you're growing and you're learning and you're getting smarter and you're getting tougher and you're learning more savvy. Just like the things that I allowed on the first uh, production that was done, I didn't allow on the second one. Right. And so you get, you know, so you're growing, you're growing all these muscles. You're not, it's not just your talent muscles, it's your, your ability to defend yourself and to protect your work and to go, I disagree with that. And, and you know, I remember one time there was a, a, a writer who was doing a play and, and a couple of things got really wonky at rehearsals. And I said, well, why didn't you speak up? He said, well, I was just scared that I was actually doing a play at the public theater and somebody was going to discover I didn't know what the hell I was doing and throw me out. Right. And it's that fear. You have to get, you have to realize that fear and doubt and all, the self, all that stuff is a part of growing and you have to have permission to grow. And so that's, that's what I took on very much so, which is creating a space that was as, that I, wanted the, I wanted the audiences and the artists there, I wanted it to look like the subway at rush hour in New York. I wanted to have all kinds of people there. So that was the thing that I loved. After a while, it became very, very clear to me that as much as I was creating spaces for other artists, it was very challenging to be one. Right. And while being in charge. Well, let's go back to, again, what you were doing when you got that opportunity to go there, because this was the beginning. While you're creating these opportunities for people off Broadway, you were making your first inroads on Broadway. As you mentioned, Jelly's Last Jam, 1992, you co-wrote and directed this about Jelly Roll Morton and the birth of jazz. Uh, your first Broadway show, musical with Gregory Hines, um, and small role the first time you're working with Savion Glover. Yep. And this gets 11 Tony nominations, wins three, and sort of leads to Angels in America. Mm -hmm. Now, this is, it's been looked back at. I think the New York Times looked at it as the, the greatest show uh, on Broadway of the last 30 years. It's an all-timer, obviously. But you first saw it as a spectator in yeah. Los Angeles. It yeah. started at the Mark Tabor Forum. There doesn't sound like there was even a thought in your head that no, you might ever no. have a, anything to do with this. No. So how did that change? Uh, well, Jelly had opened up and I worked with a producer named Margot Lyon who, who passed away, who was a very dear friend of mine. And everybody, you know, and there were some changes that were going to be made from the taper to, to uh, when it moved to Broadway. And she brought my name up and... Uh, Tony Christian, and someone called me up and said, Tony Christian wants to come and talk to you. I said, okay. And he came over and he talked. And I had never read the play. I'd only seen it. So I talked to him about it and just gave him my observations. And um, and then, you know, 
three or four days later, somebody called me up and said, he wants you to direct it. So it was just sort of, you know, I, I used to joke and say that my ancestors had board of directors meetings <laughs> and they would figure out what I was going to do next because this right. is literally dropped into my lap. And it was wonderful. So And hard, but good. Oh, yeah. I mean, and as you say, so initially part one, one was three and a half hours. Three and a half hours. And that was uh, Millennium Approaches. Approaches. Then I guess he finishes Perestroika. That's another three and a half, right? Well, he also finishes Perestroika while we're in rehearsal for Perestroika. For, for, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. So for anyone who doesn't know, this is biting off, aside from the, the amount of time, of it's just a lot of subject matter material, uh, AIDS, being gay at that time, politics, Roy Cohn, angels, on and on, a lot going on there. Um, when you were stepping into that assignment, which had already, this was already a phenomenon in Los Angeles. Yeah. There's high expectations, huge pre-sales. And everything. in London. And, and in, in London. London. Yeah. Is that exciting, scary, intimidating? What, were, what was your uh, feeling going into that? Well, it's, it, it was, once again, it was one of those incredible things because I was going like, how do you direct a seven-hour play? And I would <laughs> just went, oh, like anything else, one scene at a time. Right. Right. And it was also, it was also one of those situations where, you know, just, I just, it, I got really basic with myself. I said, George, nobody's paying you to be overwhelmed, you know, intimidated, of fear. They're paying you to do the job. So do the job. So get to work and right. just do the work. Right. And so there was no time for, if you do the job, there's no time for self-doubt. If you, if you're doing, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, all that other stuff is just crap. And it, and it just gets out of the way, just get out of the way and you push it out of the way so you can do the work and dive into it and, and, and approach it with his grit, with, with, a and, and, and also, in, in that case, I felt as also, particularly on part two, I felt as though I wanted to protect Tony because he was doing rewrites so that he could do the work that he needed to do. And also to protect the actors because the actors were performing part one at night and then rehearsing part two during the day, which can make a person crazy. And it yeah. made them all crazy. <laughs> and, and, um, and, and so it was, I had a, I had a series of jobs to do right. in a directing to directing and protecting the artists and protecting the work. So, and starting at the public and, theater. And starting at the public theater and, right. and all of that. And so it was just, you know, it's a, you know, it's, you, it's do a it. job, you gotta yeah. do it. You just do, you know, you just do the job and, and keep, and try to keep his focus and clearance as it is clean and, and, and as uncontaminated as you possibly can in your brain so that there, once again, fear and all that sort of stuff, that's, those are luxuries. And of course, Went out the, once it was up and running, went over tremendously. Record number up to that point of Tony nominations for Millennium Approaches, tons of Tonys, all of that. You have, I want to talk about how this impacted you. Here's a quote from you from a few years ago. Quote, prior to Angels in America, if I walked to the corner and threw away a banana peel, it would be George C. Wolf, black director. Since Angels in America and the public theater, I am no longer discussed as being black in the press, close quote. Now this, I had read, I can't independently confirm this, but this, there was an assertion that Angels in America was the first really blockbuster Broadway production that wasn't about black subject matter explicitly that was directed by a black director. I don't know if that's in true. In the history of Broadway, I the, yeah. think that's true. 
But so just your, that, to come back to your quote, can you expand on how this affected your life and career and that? Because this is as big as it gets. Well, it, it was just, you know, it was just like if I express interest, you know, you know, I, I direct Iceman Cometh with, Den, with Denzel and the, and the rest of the cast is white. I mean, it's not like trick casting. It's just because he's a brilliant actor and you mm -hmm. just do it. And so I think it, it people, it, it shattered. Once again, it didn't shatter anything for me personally. It shattered other people's limited view of me. Right. And that's, you know, because then, oh, he, oh, he does that. Oh, and first it was like an all-black musical that I directed with, with Gregory Hines, and it was a new one, and it was, it had dark edges to it, and at the same time it was entertaining. And then I did Angels, you know, which was this epic, brilliant, phenomenal play. And then after that, it was, you know, I was, it, there was, there was, there appeared to be, there was still some, but there would appear to be no question of that I could do. I was a director. Yeah, yeah. And if and, and if I loved something, or if I wanted to do something, or if I was interested in something, you know, I would either pursue it, or people would pursue me. And you know, and that still, you know, film it was that was a little bit different. Well, we're we're about to get to that because yeah. two thousand five so yeah. is when you took your first steps into filmmaking, or at least that's when the release of the first film was. But before that, there's one last pre-film stage production we got to talk about, and that is Carolina Change. 2004, you directed, uh, this is a musical about a black maid working for a Jewish family, 1963, Louisiana. And it's you and Tony Kushner again, uh, as well as Janine Tesori. These are, this is like the, the, the dream team of Broadway here. You got yourself and those two. Um, that's another show that, Maybe it was in some ways more polarizing than than earlier ones, but it, people who loved it really loved it. Yes. What was the what stands out to you when you think back on that one? Um, I don't. It was it was a it was a fun collaboration. It was uh, the New York Times wrote a dismissive review, which was wrong. <laughs> um, I was trying to be. I was trying to, you know. Um, which was wrong. It's a brilliant piece. It's an astonishing piece. Tanya Pinkins played Caroline, and it was a yeah applaud. She was it was yeah. a life. <laughs> it was it's a brilliant performance. The whole cast was just right. extraordinary. It was you know, and it was a um, it was it was it was a work that I was very 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 proud of, and very proud of Tony and Janine. It's a kind of a true story, and you know, Janine's extraordinary. And it was it was a great it was just great hard good work the whole team all the actors it was it was it was a joyful experience and just out of curiosity since you move between musicals and plays do you sort of reflexively feel more at home doing one or the other or no. not at all no now this guy that I work with John Benjamin Hickey who I work with on yeah. the Normal Heart said to me and I went. Oh, that's true. He said, you direct plays like they're musicals. Uh -huh. And you direct musicals like they're plays. The rhythm. You are, well, it's just, you know, it's, I also think it's like I, I'm, I'm very interested in musicals t tend to be, that's why I loved Carolina Chase, that's why I loved Jelly, tend to be, you know, I think I love you. I love you. And you just, and you know that you're in love with that person and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> I was really interested in seeing cultivating 
behavior so that you understand what the story, and, and that's why working on something like Caroline was, was, was really great because it was, they would sing something, but you, would, you had to study and key into the behavior the way you do in any play, in a Tennessee Williams play or an August Wilson play or, a, or Eugene O'Neill play. So I wanted to bring, I like bringing that sense of texture and depth yeah. to, to, to how musicals are performed. I mean, it, I love the buoyancy of it all and you have to maintain that buoyancy, but I like the texture of that. And actually, strangely enough, I feel like Zoe is probably working on musicals that trained me to direct film. Perfect transition. Because there you go. Here we thank you. We are, okay, so your first film project is Lackawanna Blues. This is uh, 2005. It's adapting a play by an actor turned writer, yeah. Ruben Santiago Hudson, that you had commissioned back when you were at the public. Because Ruben used to come into my office and run his mouth and tell these incredible stories. <laughs> and I went, I got a building to run. Here's some money. <laughs> Go sit in that room and write it down. And he turned it into a brilliant one-man piece. And then HBO was interested in doing it. But prior to that, I directed a show at the public. And most of Yassine Bey was, was a really good friend of mine and had all these projections and all these projections and all these productions. He said, Go direct a film. Just go do it. You're doing everything but the film, so go do the film. And then Ruben called me up and said, will you help us out? And I said, sure. And that's how I got involved. Now, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems like there, while there may be certain similarities between directing for the stage and directing for the screen, there are definitely some different skills also required. I can't imagine that anyone, even a great theater director, can just show up and know stuff with the camera and all of this. So who, what was the most important assets for you as you were stepping into filmmaking for the first time to just know technically how to do some of the things you wanted to do? Well, I, I just made the camera a character. I just made the camera a character. Mm -hmm. And that's how I treated him. I said, you know, I said, I don't know what this thing is. So let, <laughs> let's, let, let me, let him be or her be an observer in this story. So I just turned him into a character. And, um, and I would periodically do, I'd have my, my theater to film dictionary running in my head. And I, and I, I be, at one point I said, oh, you know, rehearsals in the theater, you rehearse, you know, six, six, seven weeks, you know. And so I started instituting, I have a rehearsal period. Um, Which is for, not that common in for yeah, screen acting. But I, for, for Rustin, I had a two-week right. rehearsal period. On um, Maureen, I had two weeks rehearsal. When we were filming on um, Maureen, you know, Chad would, would come up to me like literally once a week and say, thank God we had the rehearsal period right. because it builds confidence. And it also is a time, time for you to evolve a vocabulary of working with the actors so that therefore, by the time everybody, by the time everybody else has showed up with the cameras and everything, everybody is, they're grounded in a very specific way. So I just... You know, and, and also I realized that film, you can, you know, your compulsive, insane self can show up and, and be engaged. I remember I was directing a scene um, in Lackawanna and there was a, a guitar player who was blind and his eyes had this, they, this really beautiful opaque color and he was having a scene with this little boy and there was, um, and there was some iced tea 
on the on 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 the porch and they were talking and I went, that iced tea is the wrong color. It's going to upstage his eyes. We got to get rid of the iced tea. And I said, make that lemonade. And then I heard people go, he wants lemonade. He wants lemonade. He wants lemonade. And then the next thing I know, they show up with the lemonade and I was right. And, but it was just sort of like, it just fed that idea of every, I, I firmly believe that everything either contributes to the storytelling or distracts. And, and, and so that's, that was, that once I figured that out, and you know, so for for a perfectionist or a control freak, film is better because you can. There's no end in sight. No, right. no end in sight. Right. Whereas when when you 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 know, if you're making a change in the theater, uh, when you're in previews, you you only have from like one o'clock until six o'clock to rehearse because then the actors have to take over so they can perform that night. And if you overwhelm them too much, they won't have the confidence and the command to do what they need to do, including all the changes that night. So you have to limit it. Whereas with film, you can just, you know, keep going and going and going and going right. and driving everybody crazy. So I'm going to bring up a topic that may set you off from what I've heard. People say when you're adapting something from the stage to the screen, as you have done on numerous occasions, you have to open it up. Meaning, don't just, it, it shouldn't look like a filmed play. Those are not, that's not a phrase you particularly like, right? Opened no. up. Why? Well, because I, like, I don't know. I just, you, I, I don't think you think about the thing that you shouldn't do. That's not a choice. You think about the opportunity of what you do. In Ma Rainey, it was like they spend a lot of time in this, the musicians spend a lot of time in this basement. And I wanted to be claustrophobic and I wanted it to be oppressive. And there's a lot of language flying around all over the place. That's not a weakness. That was a choice that was made. And then there was a moment where where uh, uh, Levy, Chadwick Boseman's character kept on talking about this door and kept on talking about this door. And then at one point I just discovered, I came up with the idea, well, let's have him at a point where he's feeling his least powerful knock that door open. And he knocks the door open and he goes into a room and he realized it's just as enclosed. And that was a metaphor for him, for a black man of ambition at his, a young, a young black man of his age in the 1930s. If regardless of it, you think you've escaped one locked room, you end up in another. And so that was opening it up in storytelling ways. And then when they cross the streets and so you're looking at it. So I look at, for, at it as just as just telling the story as opposed to, and now I have to open up. Right. You know, it's just, it was part of the organic process. Or at the end of the film, when, when he gets tricked out of his songs, you know, in the play, the play ends, because he kills the person, Glenn um, um, Herman, whose character's name I've forgotten right now. And, and then all of a sudden, at one point, I, it came to me, I went, oh, what happened to his song? And then you see... You see, like you see with Big Mama Thornton and, and Elvis Presley, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. So we get to see the end image is, is him, is, is an all-white band playing his version of his song and stuff. So, so as long as you can find an organic 
way of expanding the world and expanding the universe, then you do so, as opposed to thinking about, and now I must obey this dictum of opening. You know what I mean? Where's the opportunity? Breathe inside of the opportunity. Don't breathe inside of some dictum that somebody is saying. And if, if, it, if it succeeds, it succeeds. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. On to the next one. Right. Well, the next one, first we'll say, for Lackawanna Blues, first film, you win a Director's Guild Award and a National Board of Review Award. So not yeah. a bad way to yeah. start there in a new medium. Then you followed that with the film Nice and Rodanthe. This is an adaptation mm -hmm. of Nicholas Sparks. You got Richard Gere and Diane Lane. Then you go back to Broadway for a great um, production that was not with us long enough, Shuffle Along, yes. which is worth discussing for a moment because I think it kind of goes back for you years earlier. This Can you just explain for people what the original Shuffle Along was and why it was important to you to reunite with Savion Glover and bring it to Broadway? Well, Shuffle Along was done on Broadway in 1920, U.B. Blake, uh, oh my God, the brain is going to go blank. Um, and, um, oh my God, what the hell? Well, you were, I know one of the people involved was Paul Robeson, who you were very... <laughs> Paul, but he was, he, he, he joined it yeah. early on. Aubrey Lyles, and there were, there were, there was, um, oh my God, I can't remember. God forgive me for not remembering your name. Uh, but anyway, it was done in 1920 in the summer and no theaters on Broadway generally performed during the summer because there was no air conditioning. But they came into town with this show called Shuffle Along and it became this monumental hit. It, it ran for a couple of years they would, it was a touring company. And one of the things that's so interesting about U.B. Blake, U.B. Blake's parents were, were, had been born into slavery. And, and his dream was to make a Broadway show. And I just found that there's something so poetic and so astonishing that that's what his dream was. And his parents were in, were slaves and he goes and makes a Broadway show. So that, that was extraordinary to me. And, and, and it became this huge hit. And then it, when it toured around the country, because it was such a big hit, you know, it started to integrate a lot of the theaters around the country. It made like, like I think, $19 million, which is a lot of money in the 1920s. And, and it was this huge hit that transformed Zigfield, hired the chorus girls from Shuffle Along to teach the girls at the Zigfield Follies. It was this huge influential hit. And it's similar but very different than Rustin. It, 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 I remember I, I found a copy of a book about hit plays from 1920s, and it had been the biggest hit of 1920. And they had a list of all the plays, all the musicals, all the musicals. And they had also mentioned Shuffle Along. And it was just astonishing to me that something that had had that great of an impact got dismissed by history similar to Pyard. And so I have to, I said, I want, I have to tell this story. And the more I got into it, the more obsessed I became. And so this was you and record six time Tony winner, Audra McDonald and, uh, in the movie, in the movie. Yeah. Back here as well. Yeah. You, you have your stock company, you know, but, just, but Savion Glover again, anytime yeah. you're going to do dance yeah. on Broadway, yeah. you gotta, yeah. um, so anyway, that was a, that was a special one, but now back to the screen 
The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks 2017, which was with, among others, one Oprah Winfrey, yeah. returning to acting for the first time in a while. And then 2020, your first of now two collaborations with Netflix, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, an adaptation of the 1984 play by August Wilson, who died in 2005, meaning you guys overlapped in the business. Did you know each other? Yeah. He, he August, off, August offered me um, one of his plays, and he said, we, I, we met in the bathroom at the Goodman Theater in Chicago. <laughs> he said, I want you to direct a play of mine. I said, sure. Uh, can I read it? He said, I haven't written it. <laughs> and so I said, well, I don't know if I have anything to offer until I read it. I could be a bad fit for it. Sure. And so, and, and so I, I never, so we, we talked about it. And interestingly enough, Jelly's Last Jam, which was my first Broadway show, he was the original book writer on that before I got involved. Oh, wow. Wow. And then he went on to write his 10 monumental plays. Yes. And 11, you count. And the thing, so Denzel Washington, who you, again, have a longstanding collaboration with, he's the one who has said, we need to bring to the screen all of these yeah. August Wilson productions so that they're kind of preserved for posterity. Yeah. And that really kind of began with him coming to you, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what was the, what was the... Well, he did the first one. He did. Oh, excuse me. Fences was before. Fences was yeah. yes. And then. And then Ma Rainey. Um, but he says, I want you to be the the guardian of this one. You go and get Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. And we should note, for people who have just seen Rustin. Coleman Domingo. Coleman Domingo as one of the yes. people and in the Glenn band. And Glenn Terman. And Glenn Terman, right. So yeah. um, I guess, you know, we've talked a little bit about the way you worked making Ma Rainey, but, but, you know, a question that I'm sure you've gotten many times, but people will of course be interested. That was, that was the last time we got to see Chadwick Boseman yeah. on screen. Was there any discussion that he was not? Well, no, no, no. idea. No. Now I did. Not it was a no discussion. There was, it was the ferocity. Right. You know, he was thin, but I, I, you know, we get fat, we get thin. I didn't. It didn't process. But the, the 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 work ethic and the and the brilliance of the work, and you know, was just so ferocious. And I mean, the last week of filming was was a hateful week because it had three or four of his most monumental scenes, and 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 the, there was the one scene where he he pulls a knife on on Coleman in the scene and there were these steps outside of that room and after a take he would just go over there and he'd just be like this and I go over it and I go over it and I go do you have time for some I said are you ready for some notes and he'd go <laughs> motion to you and, 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 then, and then I'd give him to him and then he'd come back and do the scene again with the same degree of intensity the kicking of that door we had to he busted the door. We had to get a repair on the door. <laughs> so he approached the work with such ferocity and intelligence. And he, he sent me a script of something that he wanted me to direct. I sent him a script of something that I'd just written that I'd want him to do. So it was all about forward motion, forward motion, forward motion. It's just, it's still, it's still deeply, deeply, de deeply devastating. Absolutely. Now, the one thing you have said is that there's a, there's a scene in which Levy, his character, reveals a scar on his chest. Did you and Chadwick have a, a chat during that uh, making of that? Um, 
he, he would, he, uh, well, we, yeah, we, talked, he, we talked about it a lot, and he talked about it a lot. And he, and he talked about sharing, sharing secrets a lot and, when, and the phenomenon of doing that. And even, you know, I, I, in retrospect, I realized what he was saying, but he never said it. He just wanted it to be about the work. I work with Nora Efron, right. you Lucky know, guy. on Lucky Guy, her play. And she came to my house, you know, two or three times a week while she was very, very sick. And she, she said, I didn't. And, and then someone called me up and said, Nora's very, she's very sick. She's in the hospital. I said, can I go see her? They said, no, she's, she's dying. And and she's told she told people in her family, but she said she said I did not want every conversation to be about my illness. And I think you know people have different ways of dealing, and you so you just have to honor and respect them, and right. and 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 be blessed for the time that you have where you work with them. And we're so lucky to have that performance from Chadwick. Yeah, for posterity. Oh my God, yeah. it's astonishing, astonishing work. This brings us to Rustin. Yeah, two thousand twenty-three. Uh, it has been exactly 60 years since the March on Washington. How long have you known the story of Byron Rustin and what made you decide to be part of a film about him? Well, I, find, I, I, um, I, I sort of tangent, sort of kind of knew about him in college. And then when I got involved with the Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, I really dug into not only the civil rights of that city, but also just in general. And that's when I became sort of obsessed with Bayard. What fascinated you the most about him? Well, the fact that he organized something so monumental in eight weeks is... Who does that? And people would say, and people and his contemporaries said he was the most brilliant organizational mind around. Period. Everybody knew it. Even people who couldn't stand him or who were jealous of him or didn't want him around acknowledged how brilliant he was at that. So that that was that was a huge obsession of mine. Then when I found out that he recorded an album of Elizabethan songs and Negro spirituals. I mean, who does that? I mean, it's just sort of like, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it's so wonderful at the exact same time. How about also the fact that at a time when this was a pretty repressed society, this guy was living about as out as you could be, right? 100%, 100%. It's, it's interesting. And I think, I, we, and, and the Quaker, the fact that he was a Quaker, I think had a lot to do with that in some strange way. Okay, now, there's no special movie if you don't have a special actor to play Byron Rustin. As great as you are, that's another key ingredient, right? So what made you think of, and we're lucky you did, Coleman Domingo? Well, his his name was brought up by a number of people. And I went, oh, okay, that could work. But I was also, I was sort of, well, initially, I was called upon to write and direct it, but I was finishing up Ma Rainey or I was writing something else so I could do it. So I was in the process of entering. I was entering into the material the, the way I, you know, it's like if it's a period piece, I try to learn as much as I can about the, about the period, the details, popular culture. I, you, know, I, you know, I saw Shadows, you know, John Cassavetti's first film, which is strangely enough about race and was set in New York City. 
uh, sort of 66, I think it was, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. did A Man Called Adam. And a lot of it was set around Times Square area. And then Sweet Smell of Success, which is a brilliant movie. So I was looking at all the movies from this time period. And it became interesting that a lot of them it happened around the Times Square area. And Arthur Gelb, who was a cultural editor of the New York Times and who was a friend of mine, he said he remembered being standing in Times Square and seeing a policeman go up and hit a black man on the back of his leg saying, you don't belong here. And it just got, and it just became very interesting to me. Well, where, where did black people belong aside from Harlem? Where did they belong? And, and where did gay people belong? And it was on the side, it was 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, the streets where there are shadows. That's why a lot of the scenes, a, a lot of the scenes between Byron and Elias are happening in these shadowed areas. So in some respects, the movie is a journey of, for me, of going from, from having to exist on the side streets, in the alleys, to taking over Washington, D.C., daylight, and claiming that city as your own. Because also Washington, D.C. was segregated at the time. The scene where we filmed the, the, the girl being assaulted, the three, the, the three people at the city, at the time, the, our, 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 our scout told me this was a segregated place as well in D.C., so it's so it was very so I was just in the process of just absorbing all this information as much information visually and and sonically and you know Doris Day and putting Ruth Brown in there and little Jimmy Scott and just so it felt like the texture of of the period and the people somebody mentioned oh blah blah blah, blah coming to me I went oh and I go oh okay yeah mm-hmm, okay and then at one point I just found myself going oh. Coleman could do this. Oh, oh, that would be fine if hear Coleman say that line. And so it just, it, so it became organic. It, be, it became a part of the process of my layering in the understanding of how to embody this period. And so his brain sort of joined that process. And Coleman, not that this was required for him to play this part, but happens to also be quite a social activist himself, mm-hmm. I believe. And yes. uh, just a really interesting and he was a, guy. He's a baritone, but he changed his voice to become it's a tenor like like, right, like Bayard. Right. Um, now, you surrounded him with a lot of great actors, including many of them who have been, again, part of this stock company of people you return to. Some not, but let's just note, Glenn Turman again, Audra McDonald again, Jeffrey Wright, who you've worked with probably more than anyone. More than any other actor. Right. Uh, Chris Rock. Yes. Who I believe I just heard is now going to direct a Martin Luther King biopic. I have heard that too. Okay. And... Uh, <laughs> Adrian Warren, who took a couple days off from giving a Tony-winning performance to come be in your... Not a couple of days off. She's doing eight shows a week. Right. Monday is her day off on Broadway. She comes to Pittsburgh, which is where we filmed, films her two scenes, and then goes back so she can resume her eight performances a week schedule. Wow. Well, that says as much about... You as it does about her. She really to to go and do that for for someone means you, you know. No, I adore her. Some... I adore her. Okay, so bottom line, many people who are gonna come across this movie on Netflix or elsewhere may look at the title and have no idea what Rustin is. They watch the movie. It's a learning, entertaining experience. What is it though that you would hope they leave? the experience of seeing this movie, you know, 
thinking, doing? What's the main takeaway you hope there is from this? Well, I'm I'm obsessed with, and it, once again, it, this started around the museum. I'm obsessed with, or even though bio doesn't completely fit this category, particularly after you learn more about it, but I'm really obsessed with ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And by virtue of doing these extraordinary things, become extraordinary themselves. And so every single thing that I do or work on, I want it to be an event of empowerment. Not rah, 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 I'm so happy empowerment, but a confidence and a depth of understanding about that they have, they are capable of wondrous things. And that's what, and, and, and I think he knew that he was, he was capable of wondrous things, but also seeing him work with these young kids and empower them and going, no, 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 dig deeper, be smarter, be braver. There's a smarter answer, pushing them and pushing them and pushing them. So I hope that they come away with, with a sense of that, that's, that, that sense that, once again, that activism is a verb. So therefore, it's about the organizing, it's about the planning, it's about the thinking, it's about the doing. So claim the title all you want, but do the hard work too. So that's very, very important to me. And to see an example that you see these people pull off this miraculous event. They, they pulled it off. One of the most moving sequences of, of, in my mind, and it probably, it comes from probably doing theater and film, is when you see those trucks pull up past the Lincoln Memorial and you, you go, oh my God, I've actually pulled this shit off. That's just a, you, the miracle of that, the miracle of when the collective is focused and driven what it's capable of. So that's one of the, that's some of the things that I want them to carry away. Well, on behalf of everybody, thank you so much for the great work on stage, screen, and for being here tonight. We really appreciate it. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.